Okay, I'll admit it. I am a geography nerd. I could look at maps over and over, especially physical maps. You you know, the ones that show landforms like rivers, hills, plains, plateaus, mountains, etc. When I was a kid, I would look at the maps in the World Book Encyclopedia and I'd wonder what it was like in that particular place, what it might look like, how it might seem, you know. Well, thanks to Google Maps and Google Earth, now you can drop a little yellow man almost anywhere in the world and get a 360-degree view of the environment. I do it all the time, and I just talked to an old friend a couple of weeks ago, and he does the same thing. And I imagine there are a lot of other folks who do as well. A friend of mine who has kids, he uses Google Maps all the time, and his daughter said, asked him, she's in her early teens, Dad, what did you guys do before Google Maps? We had maps and these book things called atlases. You can still see them on the shelves in bookstores. Then I envisioned her saying, what's a bookstore? One of my history professors once quipped, geographers are just historians, but they have maps. There's something to that. Landforms have a lot to do with forming the cultural groups that emerge there. But for years, I always wondered, maybe you did too, why is Wisconsin America's Dairyland? I mean, there were other states that just as easily could have earned that title, but for some reason, Wisconsin was the place that got that name. Wisconsin also gave us the Farmer in the Dell song. You remember that? Farmer in the Dell, the Farmer in the Dell. Or so one of my elementary teachers told me she was from Wisconsin. I have no reason to doubt her. And Wisconsin gave us Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Or so the TV told me so. I have no reason to doubt it. Commercials never make exaggerations. Do they? This is episode number 11. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Hello everyone, and yes, this is the Brews Traveler, and I am Alan Tatman, and I'll be your host for the next 50 minutes or so. And thank you for listening in. This week's episode is taking us up to Wisconsin and an interview with a true pioneer in the craft beer resurgence of the 1980s and early 1990s. Dan Carey, who, along with his wife Deb, founded one of the iconic names in American craft beer, New Glarus Brewing Company, nestled in the valley and on the hills above the Little Sugar River, about 40 minutes southwest of Madison. Now, this was a fantastic interview, mainly because of Dan's perspective on the industry over the last 40 years. And really, I could have talked to this man for hours. And as it was, I did have to cut a bunch from the interview, uh, mostly when I was talking, because I wanted to let Dan tell us his story. And it's a great story. So we've got that coming your way. Tony Rehagen is with us, and he has a report on trends in beer styles right now that's going on in the craft beer community. And if you've been drinking craft beer for 30 years, as long as I have, you know things are always evolving. 
I am recording this episode on Thursday night, August 2nd, and this show will be posted on Monday because this weekend we're headed up to Waterloo, Iowa, and the Iowa Irish Fest. Marilee and I, with our friends Brian and Sheila and John and Gila, we're going to go see the providers of our musical soundtrack, Gaelic Storm. There's a bunch of other musical acts, Irish traditional music and dance. There'll be some Irish rock, lots of activities going on. And so the reason I am recording the show tonight and not on Sunday as I normally do, and early Monday I do most of the editing, we are leaving tomorrow morning, and we will be in Waterloo tomorrow afternoon until Monday. And once I have the RV parked, I'll either be a little drunk or working on getting so. So, (laughs) and uh, I knew that there was no way I would have time to put the show together over the weekend. But also while we're in Waterloo, we're going to check out their hometown craft brewer, Single Speed Brewing, before we head back home. And we'll have that interview for you sometime down the road. So, a lot to get done in a short time to do it because I've got to be somewhere here in about an hour. So let's head north across the Mississippi River at Prairie du Chien and make our way into America's Dairyland. And away we go. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. So how did Wisconsin become America's Dairyland? I mean, like I said, it easily could have gone to another state, but no, Wisconsin got it. Well, actually, Wisconsin is not the number one producer of dairy products. They're number two. California's number one with over 39 billion pounds of product produced in 2017. Wisconsin had just over 30 billion pounds, but that figure is twice as much as number three, which is New York, at just a little over 14 billion pounds. Wisconsin, being at number two, still produces 75% of the total output of California. And Wisconsin is only 64,500 square miles, while California is at 163,000 square miles, almost 100,000 more miles. And California has a much larger population at 39.5 million compared to Wisconsin at 5.7 million. So, What were all of the geographic and historical factors that led to the emphasis on dairy in Wisconsin's agricultural sector? Before the U.S. Civil War, Wisconsin agriculture was primarily grain farming, especially wheat, like most of the states in the upper Midwest. But in the era before the understanding of crop rotation, wheat severely depleted the soil of nutrients and wheat farmers had less and less yields. And so they began to continue to move west into Iowa and Minnesota where they could find land where they could have better yields. But in the 1850s, Nearly 100,000 farmers from New England and New York, which were leading dairy-producing states at the time, they settled in Wisconsin. They moved toward a maize, that is corn, producing agricultural economy with livestock. Now, once maize is harvested, these farmers would then take the remaining stalks and cut that into a product called silage, and that was either buried in pits or it was put into these cylindrical towers, i.e. silos, 
and there it was allowed to ferment into a nutritious feed for cattle that could be given to the livestock over the winter months. Now, at the same time, in the 1850s, nearly 40,000 German immigrants moved into Wisconsin. Many of them were farmers, and observing the agricultural practice of their Yankee neighbors and the success that they were having, these Germans adopted the same tactics that allowed farmers to sustain larger herds of cattle. So given that farmers moving into Wisconsin were either dairy-centric to begin with or that they adopted that approach and moving away from depending upon wheat toward maize for livestock food, it set the state on a path towards its later stature. But it was the innovations in three things that really, really sealed the deal. First, the invention and development of automatic milking machines in the late 1800s, allowing one farmer then to do the work of dozens. Second, the development and innovations of dairy processing in the state. The University of Wisconsin was one of the first colleges to specialize in dairy science in the late 1800s, and they developed a test for measuring butterfat in raw milk, which led to a greater consistency in the making of cheese and butter. Another thing that happened was a statewide initiative to put capital investment into dairy processing and dairy cooperatives. Now, this allowed easy access for farmers to sell their raw milk. The addition of pasteurization in the processing of milk helped uh, retard spoilage, but this last development probably had more to do with Wisconsin's growth in dairy production. So thirdly, well, actually thirdly and fourthly, the two things go hand in hand. Expansion of railroads and the development of refrigerated rail cars. Now, with that, it became possible for processing plants to get cheese, butter, cream, and milk to population centers before the product spoiled. And this was especially true with easy access to Chicago, the fastest-growing metropolitan center in the Midwest in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. By 1899, over 90% of all Wisconsin farms were raising dairy cows. By 1915, Wisconsin had become the number one dairy producer in the United States, a position that it held until it was passed by California in the 1990s. Now, Wisconsin still produces more cheese than any other state in the country. Incidentally, that last innovation, expansion of railroads and the development of the refrigerated railroad car, that also had quite an impact on brewing in Wisconsin, as well as St. Louis. They were able to get Schlitz, Paps, Miller. These beers were able to be sold nationwide, expanding the presence of Wisconsin beers in the national mindset. Dan Carey, the owner of New Glarus Brewing, he and I got into that a little bit, and I could tell right away when I started talking to Dan that he's not only as a he's a not only a brewer and a scientist, but he's also a student of history, and he understands the place of science in history. And I really appreciated talking with him. And I hope you like this. And here it is. This is your interview of the week. Coming to you from New Glarus.
Glarus, Wisconsin, home of New Glarus Brewing Company, Wisconsin's largest craft brewer. And I'm here with owner and founder, along with his wife, Deb, Dan Carey. And Dan, thanks so much for having us here. It's my pleasure. And Welcome. I have been drinking your beer for a very long time. I can't tell you how many years. When did you start the brewery here? We've been here since 1993, 25 years. Wow. Look, from the business here today, you guys are going strong. Yeah, we can't complain. How did you get involved in craft brewing to begin with? Uh, I studied brewing in college. I went to the University of California at Davis and studied brewing under Michael Lewis. Um, I, when I was in college, I worked at a craft brewery, River City Brewing Company in mm -hmm. Sacramento, California. I was studying food science. So I studied winemaking, uh, dairy science, and brewing. And at that point, I didn't know which industry I was going to go into, but there's something magical about beer, so... Oh, absolutely. Did you brew anywhere before you were here in New Glarus? Yeah, when I graduated from college, it would have been in uh, 83, I went to work for a small brewery in Montana, a startup brewery. It's like, I think, the seventh or ninth craft brewery to start in the country. Kessler Brewing Company in Helena, and I worked there for three years, and that's where I uh, met my wife. I, then I went to Siebel Institute, studied uh, uh, brewing technology, went to Germany and did an apprenticeship as a brewer in Bavaria, and I worked for J.B. Northwest Building Breweries, uh, built about 48 breweries around the country, and then I went to work for Anheuser-Busch for some time and worked in Fort Collins, Colorado, and then my wife, who's originally from Wisconsin, wanted to come home. And she wasn't very happy being a corporate wife and working for a large corporation really didn't suit either of us. She's a serial entrepreneur, so uh, she wanted to come home, so we moved back to Wisconsin. Is she from New Glarus? No, she's originally from Milwaukee. Okay. But uh, we thought the Madison area was a really good place. At that time in the early 90s was a, a good place for a craft brewery to start. Yeah. How big, how large is the brewery now? You have two facilities, right? Yeah. Well, we started the original brewery in 93 on the other end of town. We call it the Riverside Brewery, and uh, we still run that brewery. It has uh, capacity, it reached a capacity of about 65,000 barrels um, in, in 2007, and uh, we, we always imagined it being about eight or 10,000 barrel brewery, so we were bigger than we ever thought was possible at that point, but we couldn't get any more capacity out of the brewery, so we made the fateful decision to build this brewery here in um, 2005, okay. and we, we designed it, and in 2006 we built it, and 2007 we started up. So this year we'll probably make, I don't know, 230, 240,000 barrels. A quarter million, almost. Yeah. That's a yeah. lot of beer. And you're yeah. selling only in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, not that I'm questioning your thinking, but kind of tell me why you guys have made this, this decision. Well, I, I'm a brewer. I'm a technician. I'm a scientist. I'm not an entrepreneur. It's my, really my wife who's, who did this. Uh, she is a... She's a business person, a very good business person, and has an understanding of marketing and entrepreneurship. And selling beer in Chicago, which was at that point our biggest market, we did really well in northern Illinois, and we sold beer in Manhattan, we sold beer out in Oregon. Um, but the problem was, when you get farther afield, you have to service those markets. So we're a small 
at that point, we're employee owned now, so we're owned by our employees. But at that point, uh, when we were starting up, we pretty much did everything. And so Deb used to have to go down to Chicago to sell beer. And Chicago is not a really great market to sell beer because everybody at that time wanted something for free. Uh, so it's a lot of work to make beer than give it away. Uh, plus, driving around Chicago was really not something that she wanted to do. So she said, you know what? We're running out of capacity at the brewery. The hell with it. Let's just sell beer in Wisconsin. And, of course, everybody thought she was nuts, but it was a brilliant move because when you sell beer farther afield, you need to have a lot of salespeople to service that. People don't really realize that a wholesaler's job is not to sell your beer. The wholesaler's job is to deliver the beer. You have to sell the beer. So you need to have salespeople in the market, and um, you need to do some sort of advertising and uh, that's expensive, and there's a joke that says 50% of marketing and sales dollars are wasted. You just never know which half. Right. We decided that we were going to spend our effort in brewing beer, not in trying to sell it far afield. So, for example, we have more lab technicians than we have salespeople. So we have five salesmen. Uh, for a quarter million barrel brewery, which is probably the best ratio, I think, probably I, in the I world. I don't think anybody so, else is going to beat you on yeah. that. So it's expensive to sell beer farther afield. There's diminishing returns because of that. Beer is heavy to ship, expensive to ship. takes a lot of fuel to ship it. It's um, best when it's fresh. Your customers don't really know who you are farther afield so we decided that we would want we would try to be a local brewery which beer historically has always been sold around the smokestack so the idea of selling beer far afield is a relatively new phenomenon it's really uh you know came up with refrigerated rail cars and post-world war ii industrialization etc but uh the idea of a local beer if you go to europe particularly places like germany Every little village has a brewery, and that's the way the, uh, that's the world that I want to live in. You know, one thing about running your own business is you kind of try to create your own vision of what the world should be, and uh, that's how we think beer should be sold. Wisconsin's a unique market. Uh, people here are very parochial in their buying habits. They're very they have a lot of pride in their in their state. You know, we have Green Bay Packers and lots of things that are. Wisconsin, Wisconsin iconic bratwurst and cheese curds and spotted cow. You know, you can go anywhere in the world and uh, find an Irish pub. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ireland is also something that's very iconic. You go, you go to cities around the country in the United States, and there are expats bars for Wisconsinites. They go and they they eat bratwurst and watch the Badgers and Packers on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, so the idea of people in Wisconsin having something local, it's a very unique state in that way. Does Wisconsin still have the highest number of pubs, taverns, bars per capita as any state in the union? I know, I know it did at one time. I, I don't know if it does. I, I can't say for certain, but I can tell you that there are certainly more pubs than there are churches. <laughs> I came through Hollandale today, which is a town of about 200 sure. people. Sure. There were three bars yeah. right there at the crossroads. Yeah, yeah. There were three of them. Yeah. You know? But see, this comes from uh, when, when this was really settled this state was settled in the 1840s, 50s, uh, mostly Germans. And so they came with, they brought with them a pub culture. Pubs are not um, saloons in the sense of 
of uh, iniquity and and and, and men sin. only. Yeah, yeah. their 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 social uh, their social clubs where people go after work or on the weekend to socialize and talk and have a beer. So it's a beer in, in, for for a Germanic culture is not that kind of puritanical Protestant view of of. Um, uh, of denial and, and, and excess being sinful is more of the feeling of uh, kind of the Bavarian view of beer. Right. And like you said, Ireland's that way as well. That's right. I mean, you're expected to behave when you go into a pub. That's right. And it's a social place. That's, and that's what, the, that's what a Wisconsin pub is now on one hand. But on the other hand, I mean, let's face it, America has always been a hard-drinking country. Oh, absolutely. Americans are... Are hard drinking whiskey. I've always been gun toting, hard drinking, uh, fighting people. That's right. just. I mean, I'm not. That's I'm not fun. saying it in a prideful right. way, but it's historically that's who we are. So there is a danger, right? Uh, right. With overconsumption. Well, and whiskey on the frontier, especially as people were moving, they're moving fast. You got more bang for your buck. So that's it was, right. It was whiskey that they were the these Scots Irish pioneers coming out of the Appalachians. That's they're they're bringing whiskey with them. It's concentrated beer. Right. We we could talk about the history yeah. of alcohol for all afternoon. Yeah, right. But anyway, so so Dan, what about your portfolio? What are your flagships? And so what what are you? What's your portfolio like? Well, our number one selling beer is called Spotty Cow. Right. We call it a farmhouse ale. Some people re- refer to it as a cream ale, although it's unfiltered golden ale. Our next selling, biggest selling beer is a dry hop pale ale called Moon Man. Uh, we call it Moon Man No Coast Pale Ale. Uh, then our third biggest selling beer is called Two Women Lager. We call it a country lager, a Bavarian or Franconian style. And you're doing that in a collaboration with a malting house? Well, actually, uh, we're using Weyermann's, uh floor malt, Czechoslovakian floor malt, for that. Okay. So uh, it was when the beer was named. It was just one beer. We made a, We made a beer with their malt just for fun. And the president of our company is is Deb Carey, and the president of Weyermann is Sabina Weyermann. So it was called Two Women. But but ironically, the hops we use are Hollertau hops grown on uh, Goshi Farm in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, who was run by Gail Goshi, so really it's three women. <laughs> so it's an all-women beer. So you have Spotted Cow, you have Moon Man, two women. Yep. And probably in a, every given year we make about 20 beers. Uh, we make in the fall, as you mentioned, our Thumbprint series. We usually have a stout uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the winter, and then in the spring maybe we'll have a Maybach or uh, a light beer, and in the summer we'll have a Weiss beer. Uh, we also make an American-style lager called Totally Naked. In the fall we make a, a Staghorn Oktoberfest, and then this year for the winter we'll make a Bach beer, a dark, a dark Bach beer. And those are our thumbprint series. Right. And then under that we have... Um, uh, we have an R&D series, which is beers that we only sell out of the brewery. So basically, we have year-round mm-hmm. beers, we have seasonal beers, and then we have specialty beers. I want to try that Gotlandic. Yeah, yeah, I that was a collaborative brewery. Yeah, I with and where was that brewery out of? Uh, they were out, uh, out of Sweden. Okay, um, out of uh, the island of Gotland. Okay, and in Gotland they make this beer called Gotland's Dricka. It's a it's a smoky beer infused with juniper boughs. So something to make at home. So 25 years of brewing here in New Glarus. What was the worst day for you? Oh, man. 
lots of worse days. Uh, when we first started our brewery, uh, we'd been open for probably three or four months, and we really didn't have much money at all. We, we don't come from a wealthy families. So we come from, say, we might, what you might call lower middle class or humble beginnings. So we didn't really have any money. The, the village, we were starting up and really were pretty much out of money. The village came up, village came down with the bill and said, we're going to have to charge you an extra $1,000 a month surcharge for your, for your wastewater. And uh, uh, I don't know how they figured that out, but that was kind of a nasty little fight to get that resolved but um we had, it ended up that they were wrong but for a while there it was it was pretty scary wow yeah that could almost have destroyed everything oh yeah definitely we started out only selling beer in one market and and we were interviewing wholesalers around the state we, we would go to to taverns and uh or, or liquor stores or grocery stores and ask uh, bar owners who was the best wholesaler to get. We were interviewing and we sat with one wholesaler and he said, uh, buy all of our stock. He would fund the whole brewery, but after three years, he wanted us to build a brewery for him. And my wife said, no, that's, that's not, we have zero interest in doing that. Right. And so he got angry and said, uh, um, kind of like uh, Nikita Khrushchev, he said, well, I'm going to bury you. Hmm. Um, and uh, he said, uh, the Memorial Union, which is on UW campus, is a big pub. Right. He said, I own Memorial Union, and you're never going to sell beer in Memorial Union. I bet it was 15 years before we got our beer on right. tap. And there was a little, lots of little uh, shenanigans that happened when we did try to sell the beer there. So never underestimate the power of uh, vindictive, powerful people. Um <laughs> Uh, I remember one time we filled the tank up and blew the manway out of it and filled the brewery up with foam. So um, there's been lots of bad days. What has been the best day ever? Boy, as we've had many really bad days, uh, it's really we've had lots of good days. And, you know, we have 120 plus employees. And um, as I've gotten older, I'm 58 now, and I start to view the world and my place in it in a different way because I've been very lucky. Deb and I have been very lucky uh, in, in things that have befallen us. And so I feel an obligation um, that that's not just by happen, happenstance. There's a payback required. So when employees get married or when they buy their first house or have their first child or their kids graduate from college, those kind of things to me are very satisfying. Our, our employees will bring, you know, bring their spouse in and uh, bring their baby and you know it's really cool it is uh, to be able to say that our you know that our efforts our brain power our backs have generated uh, enough wealth that we can pay uh, a living wage and pay a um, proper proper health care so that people can have you know their children have their babies in a safe environment right. and you know, there's a lot to be said for people raising families in, in the safety of uh, good health and, and uh, uh, wages. So there's, you know, fear is a, fear is a poisonous thing. I'm assuming that you offer a health care plan for your employees. Yeah, we pay 100%. And that's great. Well, you know, as I said, we started out with, uh, with not much. And when, when we were young and I was working for other people, we, my wife and I started out in a trailer that she bought for like 5000 bucks. I mean, I, I buy fittings now that cost 5000 bucks, but, and there were times when it was, uh, I, and there's a lot of people that even today face the thing of, look, do we 
we either eat or we buy antibiotics for right. our kids. Right. And it's, uh, it's expensive. And I think that that, to me, that's, uh, that's unjust. That's, uh, we live in the greatest country in the world, but I believe that health care should be a privilege, uh, is a right, not a privilege. So we go, we spend a great deal of effort making sure that we pay 100% uh, medical insurance. And, but see, then what you get out of that is loyalty. You get better, Absolutely. you get a better class of people. You get people that stick around, that are trained, that you can trust. So you could argue that it's a, it's a, a altruism. Ultimately, is a, is a spirals upward because you get payback for it. You've been in brewing since college. Mm-hmm. What has been the most surprising thing? the thing you really didn't expect to discover in the world of craft beer? A few things. When we first started this brewery in 93, Deb had bought, uh, went to an auction and bought some brewing equipment up in Appleton. So I went into town and I found, uh, went to the local tavern and found some farmers and found a guy with a flatbed truck and we drove up and they, they, you know, farmers being farmers, they helped me, they cowboyed up and we got it loaded up and got it moved down here, got it stood up in place and while we were working, they said, so you're going to start a brewery. What kind of beer are you going to make? This was 93. So um, I started to explain to them, we're going to make a Pilsner, a lager, a whole malt beer. No, 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 no. Is it going to taste like Bud, Miller, or Coors, or Paps? Because I can't drink Bud. It gives me a headache. This was the world that we started in in, 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 in Wisconsin right. at that time. There was a, maybe two or three beers on trap, tap, and it was usually Miller and, and Miller Light and maybe Bud Dry or some whatever, you know, Bud Ice or some whatever. Right. So that's what people drank. Mm-hmm. So now when you walk into a pub and you see 30 or 40 beers from every little town in America and every little town in Europe, that's, that's a big thing. But from a brewing point of view, beer is a, is a, is immensely complicated, and I have probably more brewing books than anybody, but most, I shouldn't say most, many of the things that I find in the textbooks prove to be not true in my world. So the production of craft beer is unique. So textbooks are generally written for the production of American or German-style lager beer. They don't really fit in our world. So we're in a uh, kind of a brave new world as far as production of craft beer. We're we're rewriting the books as we speak. Brewing brewing dogma is not necessarily... It is dogma. It's not necessarily good science. A lot of the things that you're probably doing... Our art, artisanal, we could say, yeah. our stuff that was lost to the that's age. Right. Yeah, and now it's now those styles are coming back. Uh, that's very true. That uh, you know, we craft brewers think that we're so clever and we're we're on the cutting edge and we're doing the things that have never been done before. But a lot of the things that we do were known many years ago and were mistakes or experiences that were learned uh, decades, if not centuries ago. And when you talk to old timers, particularly people that started brewing, I mean, when I started the brewing business, I talked to guys who started brewing at the end of Prohibition. So they were there at the beginning. They made Weiss beers and things, made beer and wood. Uh, so... You're right in the sense that there's very things, very few things that are new. You have 25 years of looking at this. What do you see as the challenges that are coming forward in craft beer world? One thing about the world is change is constant. Um, there is 
a lot of breweries starting. I think that there are maybe pushing 7,000, and I hear numbers of 3,000 more applications floating around. So maybe in the next couple of years, there'll be over 10,000 breweries in the country. And uh, access to market, therefore, is becoming more difficult because the wholesalers can only handle so many beers. Taverns can only handle so many beers. And it's, it's a beautiful thing for a tavern because a lot of bar owners like the, the, to, to have something new and different and rotating beers. But for someone like us, that's, you, I can't really build a business by being the, the beer of the week. What most of these new breweries are doing is, is they're, they're basically uh, um, taverns or, or saloons. In other words, they're, they're brew pubs. Uh, theme restaurants. So they, they start a brewery and sell, brew the beer and sell it themselves. Maybe they, they sell a little bit, uh, you know, draft in the neighborhood. So, so taverns have now become breweries. So the idea of Tide Houses, I think, is a vulnerability because um, if I, as a brewer, now I'm having a difficulty pushing my beer through the wholesalers out into the world. Well, I'm going to go, and brewers are doing this, starting pubs. This is what led to the uh, prohibition. Three-tier system. And the three-tier system, in spite of all of its warts and uh, frailties uh, and foibles, is a sound and robust system. If we go against that, we run the danger of excess because most brewers are responsible, uh, but when the pressure starts to come, which it will, which would be price and uh, share of mind, customers' share of mind, that brewers may start to do things to attract people. And what did they do in the in before prohibition? They, you know, they gave away free food, and uh, you have to do the more beer you sell, the more money you make. So, I think if his, history can repeat itself, so I see this move towards um, tide houses as a dangerous. Uh, but logical outcome of the movement that we're seeing. Also, there's a change, generational change that'll come up, and younger people, people in their 20s or people in their teens, are maybe more health conscious. They're less interested in drinking. You know, people of our age uh, um, going out on Friday and, and drinking, you know, till two o'clock in the morning was not that uncommon. But now people, maybe they drink kombucha or, or they drink tea or they, uh, they, they, you know, they drink coffee. Right. Uh, so, so there's, um, there's more healthful, uh, less, less overconsumption. There's uh, uh, also more interest in things like uh, whiskeys and, and mixed drinks. So there's a there's a lot of a lot of choices right uh, for people so so basically more choices more competition and the, uh, my fear of the tide house movement are probably our biggest uh, biggest challenges down the road what can fans of new Glarus expect coming down the road anything new and, and exciting well for, for us uh, we've always been sort of consistent in what we do so when I get asked that question I usually say more of the same we'll continue to do what we do but probably we will continue to build uh, on our um, program of having beers that we only sell out of the brewery so if if it's becoming more difficult to get beer out into the world then we will generate creative beers to sell only right. here we have a, a very large cool ship and a, and a 20 oak tanks um, 
in our wild fruit cave where we make our fruit beers and our sour beers, our lambic beers, sell them in half liter bottles. We'll continue to develop that and only sell the beer out of our brewery. I, I really love Pilsners, um, so we'll continue to make Pilsners and sell them only out of the brewery. So you'll see more beers that you only get at the brewery. I always like to end these interviews with something a little fun, what I call it the lightning round, five questions. Uh-oh. There's no right or wrong answer. But since you are a proud Wisconsin business, I thought your lightning round would be businesses that started in Wisconsin. All right. So, number one, Harley-Davidson or Trek Bicycles? Uh, well, I know that Trek Bicycles started in Wisconsin, uh, but it's going to only be one, not two. You got to pick one or the other. One or the other. Then I'm going to pick Trek. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, 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 it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Culver's or Breadsmith? Culver's. Oshkosh Bagash or The Onions satire website slash newspaper? Oh, now that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I have to say both, but um, if push came to shove and I can only pick one, I'd have to pick The Onions. Okay. Four. Coles or Menards? Ooh, gosh, listen, that's another tough one. I would have to go with Menards. Okay. And from television, from Happy Days, Arnold's Diner, or from Laverne and Shirley, Shots Brewing Company? Well, Shots Brewing is uh, definitely a Milwaukee brewery, <laughs> so I'll have to go with All right. uh, Shots. All right. Hey, Dan, thanks so sure, much. Sure. I appreciate you taking How'd time. How'd I do? You did great. You passed 100%. Oh, good, good. Ding, 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 ding. Everybody passes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell Deb I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to meet her, and I really appreciate you taking time out of this sure. busy day to sit down and talk to the Bruce Trail. No, it's fun. Usually uh, uh, they're not. Usually, people aren't as uh, engaging as you, so thank you. That was a good interview. That well, thank fun. you. I, I'll take That's that fun. as a high compliment. Yeah, thank you, is. sir. It is. Now I'm going to go enjoy some of your good beer. Well, you're a good man. All thank right. you. Thank it's you. a pleasure meeting you. Well, you too. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. Thanks again to Dan, and also I want to give a shout-out to Craig, one of the uh, brewery managers there. Uh, he helped me get a whole big Hall of Beer down from the brewery on the hill down to Brulissi's, which was on the lower parking lot. I was there on a Saturday afternoon, and they had cars spilling out onto the grass. They had to be at least 700 to 1,000 people there. It was an amazing sight, and I'm glad to see good people in the industry like Dan and Deb doing so well. I have enjoyed their beer for many years, and I hope to for many, many more. I'll just have to go to Wisconsin occasionally to do so. New Glarus Brewing Company is located on Wisconsin Highway 69, just a mile or so south of the town of New Glarus. The visitor center, along with the gift shop and tasting room, are open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sundays, 12 noon to 5. Besides tastings, they have self-guided tours daily and a special hard hat tour every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. To learn all about New Glarus and what else might be on the schedule, visit their website, newglarisbrewing.com. Hey, ha, da 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 ya, ha, hey! Cardi on scale What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Anthony Lawrence Rehagen, how are you doing, Tony? 
Doing well. I don't know how you been. Great, great. Uh, getting things ready. We're headed to Waterloo in the morning for the Ira Irish Fest. I know that this weekend, uh, once I get the RV parked up there, I'm either going to be uh, drinking or preparing <laughs> to do such. So I thought, uh, yeah, that's why we're doing it on Thursday. So how you First been simple, this week? When has that ever stopped you before? Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing this week? Doing well, doing well, man. Just uh, I just got back from Indianapolis on Monday. Just kind of a quick trip back to the old home homestead over there. Uh huh. Did oh, you yeah. did you get to any breweries while you were there? I did. Yeah, I had we stopped by Sun King, had a bunch of that. Uh, then we we kind of went to uh, Black Acre, which is over in Irvington. It's a it's a good uh, smaller uh, craft brew over there. Um, and just tried a bunch of different stuff. And then mm-hmm. I always when I go there, I get a bunch of uh, of uh, Three Floyds, which is actually made up in uh, up in near chicago but right. uh it's an indiana staple and it's just they got that best stuff like zombie dust and just just great beer i may be heading that way later in august just depending yeah let me know i got a couple of things in the air i'm still waiting to hear from people but anyway what do you got for us this week well in an earlier episode we talked about uh basically the fact that despite overall uh, overall growth of craft beer uh having slowed that the micros and the smaller breweries were still kind of thriving and expanding and really pushing all of the all of the movement that, that's going forward. Um, and I, d- I did some more research, and basically uh, Bart Watson, who is the economist with the Brewers Association, looked a little deeper and uh, looked into which styles of beer have been driving that growth so far in 2018. And so he basically found that it's a mix of the old and the new. And, of course, like 20 years ago when the craft beer revolution started, it was all about the IPA, you know, Good and hoppy. Uh, that was really leading the charge. Every mm-hmm. every microbrew you went to, that was one of their flagships. Was the IPA. Um, and you know, in his research, Watson found that while I think the the spectrum of of styles has definitely expanded, that not a whole lot has changed. The hops are still hops still rule. Uh, today, it's the uh, it's the American IPA, and of course, Amer- American just means more and bigger, uh, stronger <laughs> hop profile than the uh, traditional English IPA. Uh, but that's still the most popular, and and more importantly for the purposes of this story, it, the sales are, are still increasing as well. The IPAs are just just keep keep going, keep pushing the growth of the beer industry. Yeah, it's still the number one selling uh, style uh, in craft beer. Absolutely, yeah. and he even he even took it a step further because you know uh, if you've been out there lately, you've seen like the, there's kind of a new a new uh, style of uh, IPA, uh, the, the hazy the, or the juicy, they call it. Mm-hmm. It's also known as the New England style. Right. Um, where the hops are added a little late uh, in the boil. And then again, uh, earlier in their fermentation, they kind of, when the beer is still kind of churning in the tank and, you know, the hops interact with the yeast and that kind of withdraws that maximum fruity citrus character and creates a hazy beer. Right. And he, he pulled that out. And that style alone was uh, 1.2% of the craft market uh, already. So, I mean, it's not just a fad. It's it's helping the IPAs really drive the, the micro growth. So it's it's definitely taken hold. Yeah. I, and I, I, I'll be honest with you. I like them. I've, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't think I would at first, but uh, um, I, I do. I like the, uh, the hazy, juicy IPAs. Yep. No, absolutely. No, and it's it's more of that citrus character and less of that super hop bite at the end. Again, I I, right. I like a good IPA, but it's just like this the American trend to like take everything to to eleven. Like it like <laughs> it's just well, it's just too much. Like Spinal Tap. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This goes to eleven. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's cool. It's interesting though that but that the hops don't completely rule the roost because he's found that other hoppy beers kind of took a hit, uh, specifically the uh, the fruit IPAs. 
uh, not to be confused with fruity. Um, and, and then the American pale ales, uh, the slightly less hoppy cousin that's not quite as strong, uh, have, have kind of gone, gone backwards just a little bit that they've, they've kind of reduced, um, in their, in their growth. Um, but there are, are other growing styles as well. Uh, and there are lighter beers as, as I think you can notice out there too. Uh, wheats, blondes, the Kolsch's, uh, right. That's not just because of springtime. I think that's because people are kind of are kind of going. And they, that comprises 40 percent of the growth so far to date, along with the American lager. And that's what you're really kind of seeing. I know Urban Chestnut came out with their American underdog, which right. I find very, very tasty. But these, that American lager, that kind of lighter uh, lager. And you see a lot of, of, you know, smaller breweries coming out with those now. Yeah. Um, yeah, you do. And um, it's still a very popular style. I think it's a bridge beer, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if you can get somebody to start drinking a lager that's made with 100% barley malt, uh, you're going, they're going to say, oh, I like this richness. And maybe that moves them on to another beer. Right. Well, and I've, I, uh, uh, kind of a companion article that came out in a result of, of this, uh, this research that Watson had done uh, from Vine Pear was saying that, that that's exactly it. And, and, and that some of the bigger uh, craft brewers like Founders or Firestone who are like, who are, you know, owned that have some, some financial backing from Duvel are really just trying to cut into the Miller drinking public and, and the people who just don't care for all the hops. They're trying to, to get that bridge. But there's also, there's a, there's a backlash to that. They say that you might get these, these, uh, these newbies, so to speak, to think that, well, there's really not that much difference because, you know, a lot of these lighter lagers, while there is some flavor, it, there isn't, there isn't a huge difference between like that or craft egg, um, or, you know, a Budweiser. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, but, but I mean, I think you and I are the same page. Like you can poo poo the lager all you want, but sometimes you just want something light with a lower ABV that, that still has flavor. I mean, I remember going, right. Yeah. Something, you know, lawnmower beer, as they used to call it. I think that's right. what, that's what, uh, what previous generations called it something you can just pound in the, in the middle of the day after you got done mowing the lawn on a Saturday or Tuesday, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think, and here's another thing. I think that lager American style lager, I think, uh, when it was, it's truly produced in the way that it should be, or it was before prohibition, you know, um, with more, uh, more barley malt and less adjuncts, I think it's a very good style of beer, but it kind of got a bad reputation as the craft beer revolution took over. Right. I, I, right. That's well, that's my look at it. No, absolutely. I, no, I, I could I could definitely see that. And I, I'm with you. I, sometimes you just need something. You, you think it's and you get the lighter beers like the Natty Lights and stuff like that. Um, you know, you get the the weaker versions of even the American lagers, and that can really put you off because. And they've always wanted you want to drink them cold, like super cold, to the point super where they're cold is and super just, fast. Yeah, yeah. There's just no, you know, there's just no flavor. But I remember in college, uh, trying my first Warsteiner lager from from Germany. Right. I was like, this is like a Budweiser with more flavor. Like it was like oh, this was a rev- it was a revolution. Absolutely. And I the Warsteiner. I uh, there was a place up in Quincy, Illinois, and this is back in the early '90s. And um, I forget the name of the restaurant now, but the guy had Varsteiner on draft, and it was like, "Wow, this is so good!" Right. This this is what it could be. And and Bru- you ask any brewer, and we we were over at uh, Urban Chestnut uh, and talking to Florian, and and he makes a lot of lagers, and they'll tell you to to a man, even the guys that don't make them as much, or, or the women, that 
any brewer will tell you that consistently brewing a quality lager is a feat in itself because right. there's just no there's nowhere to hide your mess ups. There's no. nowhere to hide the imperfections. Like it, it's got to be good and consistent. Right, and it is. It does take more. It does take more care. It takes longer to produce. It's in, it's interesting too. You mentioned the time because there was another article I had read uh, that maybe uh, maybe fodder for a future a future segment but talking about how some some craft breweries craft breweries are kind of rushing out their ipas even going too fast and the quality is hurting and that that's something that's happening across the board as they try to compete try to get the stuff out of that they're rushing even the ales i'd be interested in hearing about that i really would. well I'll, I'll definitely look into it for sure yeah so really ipas are still the top of the heap still king yep so what did you find out about two styles that I like, and I know you do too, um, stouts and sours? Did you find out anything? Well, they didn't say much about sours, but they did say something interesting about stouts when I got into looking into it. Uh, overall, growth-wise, it seems to be pretty stagnant, not not too remarkable. But I did see something that talked about, uh, and this is something we talked about last week, I believe, how you see more of the four packs. They call them, you know, um, the four the, packs of cans. The tall boys, yeah. The tall boys, yeah, that that have been more popular. And the problem is that some stouts and porters uh, haven't haven't. While some of them have made their way to sixteen ounce cans, that that format trends heavily towards the hoppier stuff we were talking about, like the barrel aged beers in particular. They they kind of suffer from that packing movement because they're more adept to the to the bottles. You see more of them in, in the bigger bottles, um, and so that they're gonna they're, that's the challenge. And and you know. Uh, and you know, from like you know, especially like Guinness and stuff. Like when they move to cans, packaging it, you have to do it in a special way. Uh, the nitro the ball, with the widget. yeah, the nitro in it. Yeah. Yep. And so that's something the craft beer uh, world is still kind of figuring out how to transfer their their best stouts and porters into the can. So that, that I, may have here's my on opinion. Level. Here's my opinion on canned nitro products. I have not found any that are even reasonably close in quality to the that the same beer on draft i just have it oh absolutely i i i'm i the widget's a great thing if you don't have a uh a tap a nitro tap nearby but i've got one just two blocks away so (laughs) that's true all right man hey tony have a great weekend and uh i'll talk to you next week uh ladies and gentlemen tony rehagen independent freelance journalist thanks again tony Thank you, Alan. Have a good time in Waterloo. All right. See you now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. So, cheers to everyone. That's it, folks. Thanks again for listening. Please find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruce Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at the Bruce Trav LR. Tell your friends about us and please share the podcast wherever you can. Head on over to iTunes if you would and show us some love with a five-star rating and give us a big hug with a glowing review. And if you really want to help, head over to the website thebrewstraveler.com and click on the support button and you can find out how to help us on our Patreon page. Any and all support is greatly appreciated. The soundtrack to The Brews Traveler is generously provided by Gaelic Storm. Check out their music on iTunes and wherever you might get your music or visit their website, gaelicstorm.com. You can also check out their tour schedule and find out when they will be coming to a town near you. Trust me, go to a show, you won't regret it. 
marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. And folks, if I don't see you at your favorite tap room or pub, I'll see you right back here on the podcast. Remember, take care of each other. Take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And merrily, of course, as always, you are the measure of my dreams. I love you. Goodbye, everybody. And so long for just a while.
Ethical behavior is doing the right thing when no one else is watching, even when doing the wrong thing is legal. Aldo Leopold, American author, ecologist, conservationist, and environmentalist. Born July 11, 1887, Burlington, Iowa. Died April 21, 1948, Baraboo, Wisconsin.